Glory to Jesus Christ. Let's pray again, please. Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, everywhere present and filling all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O gracious one. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, I want to pick up where I left off with the missional aspects of the first Sunday. So, Again, catechumens are learning something. They're being formed. They're growing. Those of us who are, have already been baptized, it's very important for us to witness the catechumens, to see what moves them, to see what invigorates them, and then to share that with others. Father Michael and I both have a, a, the great benefit of being vocation directors because we get to spend a lot of time with seminarians. Once you've been a priest for a while, you kind of need the, the reinvigoration to see the zeal of seminarians, um, to see their, their, their zeal, to see their, their overzeal sometimes that we kind of laugh at and, oh, you'll learn, little one, you'll learn. <laughs> but also to see that they, they, I often ask when I meet a seminarian, I say, back, what, what was I thinking at that time? You know, I've been a priest almost 17 years now. What was I thinking at the time? What, what did I want? And I, I actually want to make sure that I still hold myself to that. Like, what kind of priest did I think I would be? I had this horrible story when I was a seminarian and I was in the hospital as a hospital chaplain. And um, it was, we about once a month, we would spend all night at the hospital. And they would give us a bed. We could sleep in if we wanted. But we were chaplains. But obviously, just as seminarians, we couldn't give any, any of the sacraments. So we just kind of walk around and talk to people. That was actually a really good time to learn. Once you get a priest, if you go through um, chaplaincy training as a priest, you just think it's all about the sacraments, because it is, right? <laughs> Basically, it is. But you, you kind of forget that, that you can also, you need to learn uh, pastoral skills. You need to learn actually how to talk to people. And so you, and you're a chaplain not only for the Catholics, you're a chaplain for everybody. So you got to learn how to listen. You got to learn how to have a compassionate voice. You got to learn how to be, be gentle even in the midst of great frustration. Um, and I was walking through the halls at like 2 in the morning, very zealous, you know, to bring Christ to people, um, and I wasn't going to sleep, and I'm walking through, and this nurse comes running up to me. She says, oh my gosh, chaplain, so good to see you. This guy's asking for a Catholic. Are you a Catholic? I said, well, I am Catholic. I'm not a priest. So I go walking in there is this man, probably five, six hundred pounds, laying in a, in a bed, and he's getting surgery the next day, and he's very, very worried, and he sees me, and his whole face just lights up, and he goes, oh my gosh, Father. He says, you don't know how happy I am to see you. I'm having surgery tomorrow morning. I'm afraid I'm going to die. I want to do a general confession, like my whole life. And I said, you're in luck. I'm not a priest. I can't do it, but I have a phone number. And I can call. There's always a priest on duty. I'm going to call. So I run back to the chaplain's office, and I call. And hello, it's like 2 in the morning. Hello? And I, and I, I said, hello, Father. You're in luck. There's this guy. He's having surgery. He wants to do a life confession. Like, this is why we're priests. This is what we do. When was his last anointing of the sick? Oh, I don't know, but he doesn't want anointing. He wants confession. Well, look up his last anointing of the sick. Okay, so I, I go and look, look. Okay, he received the anointing two weeks ago. Well, then he's fine. No, 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 no. no he, he, right, he's fine with the anointing, but he wants confession. And he goes, uh, just tell him if he received the anointing of the sick that he's, he doesn't need confession. And I said, I said, but Father, he wants to do a general confession, like his whole life. You know, he's afraid he's going to die. And he goes, what's your name? I said, Michael. And he goes, Michael. I'm in the middle of a Star Trek marathon, and I really want to finish this. And I just, I sat there just stunned, like stunned in silence. And probably after about 30 seconds, he goes, fine, I'm on my way. <laughs> and then he hung up. I thought, oh my gosh. Like, like uh, there's times though now when I'll get home, you know, late, and I'll, I'll see the light beeping on the church phone, and I don't want to check it, you know, I don't, like, I'm tired, I have my evening planned, I'm going to go to sleep, but I see the light blinking, and I think of that instance, 
of, you know, that's, I've become that. 17 years, I get it. You know, I don't want to have to go out of the hospital, you know. And I get it, but I, I force myself to do it because that's what you do. So there's this witness of seminarians, like I was a seminarian, that, and, and, and all of this zeal, the, the, this, this love of every aspect of the priesthood. And we all do this, hopefully, those of you that are married, do it with you know, young love, young couples, you know, kind of their, their, their vision for what marriage looks like and their love for each other. They want that honeymoon phase um, to go on for a long time. That's what we see with catechumens. We see the catechumens, those who are so zealous for the faith. Um, and, and we let that inspire us. And this is, this is the season of catechumens. This is the season of putting ourselves back in their place, awaiting the resurrection, awaiting the, our, our baptism. So those of us who are not catechumens, those of us who have received baptism, we are to carry this gift once we appreciate it more. We appreciate it more, we carry it out and, and share it with the world. Um, so a couple tips that I've learned from a buddy of mine. Um, this is a, a man I met about probably 10 years ago in Denver, Colorado, even longer than that. Um, he's, he's currently living in my guest room because he's building a coffee shop at my church. And the coffee shop is what he calls a missional coffee shop. So there's a, very, there's a purpose to this coffee shop. It's not just good coffee, but that's certainly part of it. And he's taught me these, these ways of evangelization. So what I've loved for so long in my, what I call my, my ministry of being a regular, you just go to the same place. You become a regular there. And then after you've gone a few times, they get to know your name, and they might start asking you questions, especially the employees. Well, they have the regulars as well at coffee shops, bars, restaurants, et cetera. And you become a regular somewhere, and then they become your friend, and then they start asking you questions. And they may even come see what makes you tick. And that's kind of what we're hoping, right? Um, and so he's taught me a few things that I, I have found very, very helpful. He, he put words to what I knew in my heart that I wanted to share in the gifts God has given me and the gifts God has given many of us to carry this gift, as I mentioned last time. Where do I put this gift? This gift of confidence, this gift of what God has given me, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and how do I hand them out? And he says a couple of things. He says, first of, the, of all, when you are trying to do evangelization, you need to earn the right to be heard. You need to earn the right to be heard. In other words, we don't just go off and start spouting truth because that's not how any relationships work. Right? Humans are not some legal document. God is not some legal document. We're not just a statement of truths. We're not a catechism. The catechism exists. exists. It does not need to be us. Right? We, are, we are Christ. We are the body of Christ. Christ is, is, is someone that you are in a relationship with. How many of you, being honest, wish that Jesus was just a legal document? Do this, don't do this. If you do this, you'll get this. If you do this, you'll get this. So often we, we wish that God was that way. He'd be much more predictable, right? And we'd say, okay, if I do these things, I'll be happy. If I don't do these things, I'll be sad. Wouldn't that be easier? That's karma. We don't believe in karma, right? So Jesus is, is, is a person, and a person is relationship. And so that's how evangelization works. That's how enlivening our baptism and sharing with the world what that baptism is. We are, again, an earthen vessel that carries the light of Christ. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. So we need to earn the right to be heard. And that's just a part of any human being. Why we think that somehow we're going to tell someone who's living a lifestyle completely contradictory to the good news, the gospel, is going to listen to us spouting truth, and that's going to convince them of anything. Nothing does that. Not that there's no other situation in our humanity where that works, and somehow we think that's going to happen. We think that seeing someone doing something that is contradictory, like they're dressed a certain way or they, you know, whatever, that we think just telling them, you need to stop dressing that way. When has that worked? Ever. You know, ever. You, know, you, need to, you need to earn the right to be heard. And that means we need to be listeners. We need to treasure relationship. This becomes hard because even in this stage, we need to make sure that, that we are not only pursuing a relationship for, this, for a notch on our belt. I brought this person to Christ. Right? That is completely the word I'm thinking of, degrading to their humanity, right? Totally degrading if we're only becoming friends with them because we want to bring them to Christ. That there, there, there needs to be a, a sincerity there that actually says, I love you because you're a child of God. and I want a relationship with you, even if it's someone else that brings you to Christ. This is the hard thing with siblings who leave the faith. My brother Christopher left the faith. I may tell this story later if we have time. 
I left the faith. I, I, I bought a, I had a, went through my treasure box that I had as a kid, and I, I, I got a, a little friendship bracelet I hadn't worn in a while, and I put it on, and I said, I'm gonna, whenever I look at this friendship bracelet, I'm, I'm going to remember that my brother left the faith, and I'm not going to have sweets until he returns. And I'm going to sacrifice for him so that he returns. And I remember when I told my mom this, she goes, you know, Michael, I hope, I know that your prayer is going to be effective and is, is conversion, but just be very careful that you're not restricting God in any way by saying that you need to be, one, be the one to bring him back. It's probably not going to be family that brings him back. That's rare. It's usually someone else he meets. And don't be jealous. You know, pray that he comes back no matter who brings him back. I think she saw in me a bit of that competitive spirit and that, that, that desire to be the, be the hero in the story. Remind me if I forget, I'll, if I have time, I'll tell the story of how he returned. I wore that for six months. <laughs> Thank God he came back very quickly. We need to earn the right to be heard, and that can take a long time. We need to, we need to persevere. The other thing that he taught me, and this comes from, from Alpha, the program about the, the, the Anglican program about just teaching people the very basics of the faith, right? Alpha, Omega, Alpha is the beginning. What's the very beginning of a life of faith? And uh, Alpha says that there's, there's three steps to the life of faith. Belonging, belief, behavior. I shared this with some of you last night. Belonging, belief, behavior. And it has to happen in that order. And oftentimes, we think that it's the opposite. We don't let someone be part of our community until they behave a certain way. That's the beginning. So you need to behave this way. Unless you're behaving this way, you're not part of our community. But if you behave this way, then maybe you'll start to believe. If you believe, then you can be part of the community. That's kind of what so many of us think. But the opposite is true. So much, and this is just a generational thing. This isn't like objectively true. But in this generation, in this day and age, people are so lacking in belonging, they're so lacking in community. COVID just amplified this, you know. But I started a nonprofit with Mother Natalia, we call it Fotina, because Fotina was the woman at the well, and she went out and called the entire town to Christ. So isn't she a great uh, intercessor for evangelization? So we called our nonprofit Fotina. One thing we've come to understand is that we have part of our 20% of funds that come into this nonprofit go to what we call Matthew 25 ministries. Maybe the hungry, the thirsty, the strangers, the naked, the ill, the imprisoned. We make sure that we're doing ministry to all of them in, in, in creative ways. But one of the things we've added to that and we found it is one of our main core ministries is all those things are, are basic. Like you can't, no one's going to want to listen to your, your theological and moral and spiritual diatribe if they're starving or if they're thirsty. We have to have our basic needs met before we can go to the deeper transcendent things. When we, have the, when we have these basic needs, we become animals. I'll do anything to be, get my, you know, think of a, of a drug addict, right? A drug addict will throw their mom under the bus for drugs. This is what happens when someone's really, really hungry or really, really thirsty. Right? These basic needs have to be met before we can think of the deeper things. And one thing we've realized is that community is one of those basic needs. Communities, loneliness is running rampant. And loneliness only really finds its solution in God, in heaven, when we're in union with God. That's why theosis is union with God, which is heaven. We all want this union. We're always going to have that desire, that longing until we get to heaven. But there's certainly community that we can have here on earth. When God sent me to the Proto-Cathedral, it has a beautiful, beautiful outdoor shrine. When COVID hit, I was there about a few months before COVID hit. When COVID hit, I went and bought a fire pit. I was like, well, I don't have anything to do in the evenings. I can't go to my bars, my restaurants, my coffee shops. I'm going to sit in front of this fire pit. So I did. I bought this fire pit. And I sat there. That fire pit is going two to three nights a week now and surrounded by non-Catholics. They come. I don't invite them to the church. I invite them to the fire pit. And it's probably on Wednesday nights, which is our big night, we get about 50% Catholics and 50% non-Catholics. They bring their animals, and people now walk into our church with a cup of coffee, and no one stops them. People walk into our church holding their same-sex spouse's hand, no one stops them. Men come in wearing a hat, no one stops them. They come in carrying a dog, it's very L.A., no one stops them. That's behavior. 
That's third. That's going to come. One woman said, hey, Father, can I bring my dog to church? Fallen away Catholic, has not been to church in years and years and years. I've come to the fire pit for weeks, and I bring my dog to church. And she saw the, the, the hesitation on my face, and she goes, she goes, okay, I won't. I said, no, 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 that's fine. Just, just stand in the narthex. I was like, stand in the back, right? Just stand there, but, but you, you can bring your dog in. You know, I, I don't want you to not come because you're not going to bring your dog, but, but you know, it's not really appropriate to have a dog in here. It's not really appropriate to wear a hat or to, to carry coffee. But that'll come. That'll come. Like, we, 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 we trust ourselves enough to know that that's going to come. I was telling a story last night about this. In Denver, there was a Catholic school. They had a little girl that was in kindergarten. She went through kindergarten, and then when she was in kindergarten, they found out that she had lesbian moms. And so they kicked her out. They didn't let her come back. And I thought, don't we have enough confidence? What lesbians would want to send their daughter to a Catholic school, right? If we had any confidence whatsoever, we'd say, we're going to turn her on our side, right? Like, she has a community of Catholics. She has Catholic priests. She has Catholic nuns. She has Catholic teachers. Like, why would they want that? Why do we have to kick her out? Why? Because we're afraid she's going she's gonna to convince us or our children. That's a lack of confidence. We need to go confidently saying, send your children. Send them. We have enough trust in the teaching, the beauty, the truth and the beauty and the goodness of our teachings that you should be worried that we're going to convert their hearts and Jesus Christ is going to reign in their hearts. Why are we worried about the opposite happening? But if they come and they feel belonging, sit around a fire pit, have good conversations, then the next step is belief. The next step is, in other words, this is going to actually have them asking the right questions and say, by the way, you can sit around this fire pit every night. We can become your best friends. You could marry one of us. You could be laying in bed next to one of us when you're married for 10 years, and you're still going to feel that pang of loneliness. Right? How frustrating is it to lay next to the person that you've become one with sacramentally? Laying next to your spouse in bed is still feeling lonely. What is the solution there, if that's the case? What is the solution to loneliness if you're lonely with your spouse? But we feel it. And what does that mean? That means I tell them, you can sit around this fire pit every single night, and it's not going to be satisfying. Your loneliness, like your hunger, could be satiated and satisfied, and that's still not going to be enough. And when you feel that, that's when you go to Christ. When you go to Christ, you will never be lonely. He is the solution to loneliness in heaven forever. But even in this world, theosis always begins here on earth. It has to. So belonging leads to belief. Because they say, I, I, I am, I'll talk about this in a moment too, right? I am, I am unsatisfied. I'm unsatisfied. And so belief begins to satisfy. Once we believe, and Jesus Christ, we're speaking them in prayer and fasting and almsgiving, then the behavior comes. This actually makes me change my life. I have to change my life. I have to adapt. I have to do something else. So it's usually in that order, but I don't think most of our churches are ready for that. I don't think most of our parishes are ready to say, let's welcome people to other events other than the Divine Liturgy. I was talking to um, Father and Pani last night, and I have a cousin who lives about four minutes from here. His father is my mom's brother, and his father is one of the most anti-Catholic people I know. He cannot see me without mocking me. Every single time, every single time he sees me, he mocks me. He was a seminarian for a while, left the seminary, just became completely embittered, so much so there's like a, a visceral, instinctual hatred of the priesthood. And he has a nephew who's a priest. And this cousin of mine is, is a year older than me. And thank God he does not have that at all. He calls me Father Michael, even though he's not a believer at all. Right? He, he welcomes me to his home. I meet his family. We hang out. And I, and I said to Pani and, and Father Michael, I said, what about on, on Sunday, could we, could we invite them to the social after the liturgy? You know, if they came to the liturgy, that would be kind of counterproductive. It's so foreign to their experience. But I promise you, if they came to a few socials, and I hung out with the people and fell in love with you guys? Then they would say, well, let me come a little bit earlier. We could do that. Right? They seem to be okay with kids. They have their third kid on the way. You know, they seem to be nice, welcoming people. They haven't, they haven't condemned us. Right? This is the point where we're working towards faith. We're not just working to proclaim truth from the rooftops. 
We actually want souls. And that's God has given us time as a gift. We need to be patient. Again, not for everybody. Some people honestly start with belief. Some people start with behavior. It's not this way with everybody. But I guarantee in this generation, most people are lonely. You go from belonging to belief to behavior. So my buddy who's doing this has a, has a program he's taken called the Five Cups. It'll be a website soon, so you can look it up. Don't steal that either. Five Cups. And this Five Cups, he says, he runs coffee shops, and he started the coffee shop at our church. By the way, we're calling it, uh, it's in your entryway. So um, my parish's patroness is the Holy Protection, the Mother of God. Of course, October 1st, year 9-11, right? The Mother of God comes to two fools for Christ, Andrew and Epiphanius, see the dome open, the Mother of God come down, pray, spread her, her own before, spread her, her garment of the entire city and protect these two fools for Christ. So we're calling the coffee shop two fools. So people are going to think it's either me and Father Nathan or me and Andrew, this guy, or something like that. But, but we really mean these two, these two holy men, these two saints. Um, but he has, this pro, he has this way of evangelization called the five cups. He says the first cup is a to-go cup. So in other words, you, you create a coffee shop that has really good coffee and a nice atmosphere and good parking. So people say, oh, I like good coffee. I need a good parking space. It's LA after all, right? So I go in. I get my coffee to go. That's how you begin. The second cup is a for here cup. So you go there and you say, OK, actually, I've come here enough times. It's good coffee. It seems to be good people, good atmosphere. I might actually stay for a while. So you get that for here cup. You sit down. You have your coffee. The third cup is one of the ones that you have your name on that hangs on the coffee shop wall. Was, I'm a regular here now. Like, like, I'm so regular that I have my own cup with my own name on it. And when I walk in, they take that down and start making my drink before I even pay. You know, that's the third cup. And the fourth cup is what they call the cup of communion. This is what we would call um, the, the cup that a married couple receives from at the, uh, at the reception at their wedding, right? the common cup. This is the cup that you share with somebody else. And this is the stage in evangelization where they actually start becoming interdependent on each other's lives. In other words, real interdependence, like, like old school interdependence. Not, none of this proclamation of, you know, I'm first. I need to take care of myself first, right? I need to love myself more than everybody else, right? A real interdependence. Our lives are intermingled in a beautiful, beautiful way. And then the fifth cup is a chalice, right? The sacrament, communion with, with God. Not just communion with people, but communion with God. Right? And so that, that's the model for the, these five cups. And it's very organic, and you, you, you're patient. So someone, just because someone's in the to-go cup stage, you just have hope and prayer. Many will leave after that stage. Many will not continue coming. But there's a patience and a confidence in what we have to offer as the truth and the beauty and the goodness of our church. One of the things I think after you have the social, one of the things that, that, that when people walk into the church for the first time, and you guys, as I've told you a million times, do this very well, but... When you walk into one of our churches, um, the first thing you should see is, is the dome and Christ the Pontecrotter. It's like, you ever been a tourist in New York City? And all the tourists are looking up, right? Because all the buildings in New York City, and you don't want to be a tourist, you're kind of looking down, pretending like you're not looking up and fascinated by all the tall buildings. When you walk up, there's something about natural about our humanity that you look up. Now, if you learned anything about the Byzantine church, you understand that, that we engage all five senses at all times, right? That's the goal. All five senses at all times. So there's something about when we see an icon, we want to engage another sense. What sense is that? Touch, right? We want to kiss it. That's how we respond to icons. That's how we engage with the person or the feast that's in that icon. And so you can't kiss that one. <laughs> and that's, there's a reason for that. It's supposed to be frustrating, right? Suppose uh, kids in Denver would just look up and say, I want to kiss that one. It's like, you can't, little one. And you'll, and you'll understand something why. A funny story. I have a beautiful iconographer in my church. And, and she was Roman Catholic when I met, this was in Denver. I had her, I, she was Roman Catholic when I met her in Denver. And, and so she, they started coming, and, and the, uh, the husband was very on board, like, well, this is, this is going to be our home now. And the wife was a little bit hesitant. And she said, okay, finally what won me over, Father, to, to come Byzantine was that... Um, you were teaching them whenever we'd come about icons, and then we had all the icons down low so the kids could kiss them. And, you know, and so she said, we got home, and we'd finish up prayer, and my daughter would rock over to the DVD collection, pull out the DVDs, and start kissing them. Because DVDs are about this big, 
a good-looking person on the front, <laughs> right? They look kind of like icons, right? So she says, oh my gosh, we need icons. And my, my children, my toddlers are becoming business. So I need to do this. So those are the kids, when they see an icon, they need to kiss it, right? Because that's what we train kids to do. So it's supposed to be frustrating when you walk into a church. And the reason for that is because God is always other. Gregory Paulinus, right? The otherness of God is his essence and his energies. The essence of God is always separate from us, always will be. So there's part of my experience that says God is not here. God is distant. His ways are unknown to me. I'm in awe of his ways, but they're unknown to me. And if you feel distant from God or that he's just not sharing everything with you or you're getting frustrated with him, it can be very, very cathartic to walk in and to look <laughs> and say, Christ, the Pontocrator, the king, the conqueror, is far away from me. But don't stop there. Our eyes always have to go down from the dome. And right where the dome, the heavens, the cosmos, right where they began to meet the earth is right there. Is Mary pregnant with the same Jesus? So now where heaven meets earth, you have God that is so distant, so far away, so other. By the way, what, what, what's holy mean? Holy means other. So when the angels are saying holy, 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 they're pretty much saying, you are so big, Lord, I can't say anything else about you. All I can say is you are other. I'm ineloquent about what you are. So we have this unapproachable God who's other, and then we have, that's why so often there's angels, four angels, right, around them. The angels crying, holy, 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 to the other God, the other God. We have Mary pregnant with Jesus. That's the mandorla around him, right? That's actually an icon of her pregnant with him. He's not sitting on her lap, right? Pregnant with him, so that, 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 that's, that's, God has become accessible, but Mary kind of had him to herself for nine months. Every mom gets their baby to themselves for nine months. They don't have to share their baby, right? Mary is Jesus for her for nine months. And then our eyes continue to go down to the most accessible icons. Christ the teacher. We call this row of icons the kissing icon. Because they're right there. So we have this paradox of God being transcendent and yet imminent. Holy and yet dwells in our hearts. And this process then teaches. So, so when people walk in and we're kind of inviting them from the fire pit of the social hall into the church, then they begin kind of viscerally to understand. We're, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. All these saints all around here, there's something about that. They say, I'm part of a community, even those who have died, right? God begins to make sense. The, the, the community of the, of the dead begins to make sense. And our churches are oriented towards teaching us and children, all those we drag to church, to understand something about themselves and about God and about the community that God welcomes them into. run out of time. Second Sunday is the Sunday of Gregory Polymus, who was also very late, of course. He was 15th century, so, so uh, there was definitely a theme before him, right? There must have been a theme. Do you anybody know what that theme is? I just named it a couple times. One saint, early, early saint, second century saint, St. Polycarp. Polycarp was not his name. Polycarp was a nickname given to him by his adopted mother. He was an adopted child, adopted by his mother, and he was such a holy child when he started learning the gospel and learning that you're supposed to give everything away, he would go raid his adopted mother's cabinets to give everything to the poor. And she would come home and see empty cabinets, and so she called him, named him Polycarp, which means many gifts. He took all these things and always gave them away as gifts. He'd go out and give it to the poor. This is what the gospel says. And then miraculously, God started refilling their shelves. And she was very happy about this, and so was he. He had more to give to the poor. <laughs> so he would come in and give all. He did this from the time he was a child. And of course, Polycarp became one of the fathers of the church, a, a brilliant theologian. But even as a child, he saw an opportunity to gift. I have this, I can give it away and benefit. So Polycarp was the. the commemoration before Gregory Polymus. I think it's important to, to kind of do both of those. Polycarp then can be, a, among other things, among his deeper theology, can be a, a patron of, of many gifts and charity. And this is, I think, also what catechumens began to realize, the overflowing graces that they are looking forward to, they'll be receiving in their baptism, the multiplication 
that can happen, like the loaves and the fishes, et cetera. I'll get to that in a moment. We hear that as well, of course, don't we? The gospel is Mark 2, the paralytic carried by his four friends. This is also very much a, a gospel of community, isn't it? You can realize that catechumens probably did not come because they read their way into the church. <laughs> right. They probably met somebody, had an encounter with them, felt belonging, and came to church with them. And they feel very, very strongly that four friends lowering one paralyzed friend through the roof to get to Christ makes sense. They also probably begin to realize that when the paralytic is lowered through the roof and Jesus looks at the four friends and says, your sins are forgiven, they probably feel the same way. My friends have carried me. This community, this sense of belonging has brought me here and they have faith and I'm just starting to have it and I am healed through that. I'm, I, I'm freed from my paralysis of not quite what, knowing what to do in this pagan world, in my own heathen life, whatever it may be. So they begin to understand this very well. Also, one thing that catechumens would be very, very drawn to that we completely take for granted, what, what miracles happen in the Old Testament? Is there anything that Jesus does in the New Testament that did not happen in the Old Testament before his own resurrection? Were there demons cast out? Yes. Were people, were there multiplication of food? Yes. Was, were people healed of every type of illness? Yes. Were there people risen from the dead? Yes. Right? They didn't rise themselves. <laughs> That's unique to Jesus. But there are people who are raised from the dead by another in the Old Testament. So what's the miracle that we hear about in this gospel that never happened in the Old Testament? Never Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. They're, they're, they're scandalized by this. If Jesus is risen someone, from the, risen someone from the dead, it would not have been as scandalous as the fact that he says your sins are forgiven. This is a completely New Testament thing. And there's something in catechumens who are looking forward to baptism that are saying, That's, this is the only place I can find this. The only place I can find the forgiveness of my sins this is why during Lent we put ourselves back in the place of the catechumens. Prayer of St. Ephraim, Lord, let me see my own sins. Who says that? <laughs> Who says, point out my sins to me? Only us, only us, because we have a God who forgives. And no one else, nowhere else offers a forgiveness of sins. If we become aware of our own sin, and we are very, very drawn to the church. And it's our job, brothers and sisters, to witness to the catechumens, witness to those out in the world, that that's why we come. We, we come because we are sinners. The Saturday following the Sunday of Polycarp of, of Polymus, the Saturday following we hear the call of Levi. And this fits very well. Because I, this is only, I only realized this year in my prayer. So on Saturday before the call of Levi, right, Jesus goes to, to Matthew Levi's booth, same guy, Matthew Levi, goes to, goes to Levi's booth, and he calls him. He's a tax collector, and he calls him to follow him. You know, come follow me. So imagine Levi taking that literally. Levi gets up from his booth and follows Jesus. Where does Jesus go? Remember? He goes to Levi's house, right? And he hangs out with Levi's friends. Jesus doesn't lead him away from his home and his life. He leads him right back to his home and his life. Follow me, we're going to your house. Follow me, we're going to go hang out with your friends, right? It's weird. It's kind of odd. Why would he do that? Jesus gets back there and immediately becomes condemned. Immediately is condemned. He's at, staying at the house of a sinner, and by the way, I've always loved hanging out with sinners. So there's something about when I hear this, and I made the same excuse that everybody does. Oh, my, my mom, you know, I would, I'd come home when I was my second year of college, and my mom, I was living at home when I was in community college, so my mom would do my laundry, and she'd, she'd pick up my shirts. And, Father Michael, your, your shirts smell like pot. And she's like, I know it's not you. I know you're not doing that, but all of your friends are smoking. And she said to me something very, very wise. She said, and, I, and I said something stupid like, well, mom, I'm trying to be a good example to them. You know, I'm trying to be the one light in their life that may lead them away from this. 
And my mom says, do you really think if the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of them and wants to pull them out of that life, that they're going to go to you? You're in that life, right? Why would, they, why would they hang out with you? Like, you're hanging out with potheads. They don't want to hang out with potheads if they're having a conversion. Why would they hang out with you? And I was like, you are so right, Mom, right? And so, so I would say the same thing. I'm like, well, Jesus hung out with sinners. Why can't I hang out with sinners? My mom said, you're on the wrong end of the story here. You're putting yourself in the place of Jesus? No, no, no. You're the sinner Jesus is hanging out with. Don't think that you can hang out with sinners because Jesus hung out with sinners. You're not Jesus. You're the one that Jesus is hanging out with anyway. Thank you, Mom. Always, always a humbling word, a humbling message. But the call of Levi, what did Jesus say? I have not come to call the righteous. I have come to call the sinners. I am a physician. I'm a physician. So we have to understand, admit to, and, and, and see the church as a, as a place of healing and of a, a hospital. And if we think, I get this all the time when I'm doing my ministry, all the time, Christian church is just full of hypocrites. I'm like, I know. If anybody knows, I know. <laughs> right? I know all my parishioners are hypocrites. I know I'm a hypocrite. I know all these things. But the fact of the matter is, is we're called to do something superhuman. So we will always be hypocrites. We'll always not be living up to the call that we have for ourselves. But hypocrisy is wrong. And my parish and my heart is full of people that are arrogant and think they're better than you and think we have the truth. That's why we go to church. Not to exalt it over somebody else, but be healed of this. The church is full of people that need healing from hypocrisy and other things. So if we come here with some sort of arrogance, that's our illness. That's our wound. This is the hospital. We come here for that. So it's very, very important that the catechumens see this. They see that we come here because we're wounded. We come here because we're sick. We come here because we're broken. And Jesus is a physician of soul and body. He comes to heal. That's why we go. Then when they're feeling, they might not feel sick at the time. They may say, oh, I'm very proud of myself. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing very well. But the day may come, will come, when they finally feel sick, when they finally feel broken, when they finally feel unwell. And then they may say, that priest I met one time in the bar, we're now... We're followers of each other on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. Maybe I'll look him up, see where church is. Because he said he knows the place to go to be healed. And I feel like I need healing right now. It may take years, years. I have so many stories in my head right now, I'm not going to share them all because we're running out of time. So then the next day, we have the cross Cross is the center of our faith, therefore we, we put it in the center of the great fast. The Gospels from Mark 8, this is one, one verse from it. The Lord said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever loses, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the, I heard it, Gospels will save it. Now, we've heard this a million times. We've heard the word, oh, you know, lay down your life for the gospel. What, what, what got evangelion in Greek? What's another translation? That was the literal translation of evangelion. Gospel, we call it gospel. It actually means good news. Is, is, the, is the word gospel in the Old Testament? The word good news in the Old Testament? Yes. Yes. And this is, but you wouldn't think so, would you? What is the, what is the sense of good news in the Old Testament? It's always what the runner brings back in a time of a battle. So two armies are fighting with each other. The story goes where the Philistines, in the Old Testament, for one example, the Philistines had routed and killed the Hebrews. And of course, some fled. And so while the Philistines are, are checking the bodies of the dead, they find one of Saul's children. We killed one of the king's sons. This is good. And they find another of Saul's children. We killed another of the king's sons. This is good. And they find a third of Saul's children. We've killed all of the king's children. And then they find Saul. We killed the king. The war is over. We have won. Send back the good news. <laughs> the good news of a military victory. The king is, their king is dead. Our king is alive. 
this is good news. What is Jesus saying here? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If you lose your life, give your life for the sake of the good news. Like, wait, no, good news is that the king is alive. Our good news is that our king is dead on the cross. Our king has died, and we're calling that good news. That makes no sense. The good news is the other person's king is dead. But we're now calling, when we venerate the cross, the study of veneration of the cross, we kiss the, the, the item, the means of execution of our king. And we're calling this good news. We're decorated with flowers, our dead king, and calling it good news. We can do that because we have the hope of the resurrection. Again, you can understand how these paradoxes begin to intrigue the catechumens. And we're starting to tell the catechumens, by the way, we're full of paradoxes. God and man? That makes no sense. Virgin and mother? What? <laughs> that makes no sense. Life and death together on the cross? Death for the sake of life? That makes no sense. We Christians go, I know, isn't it beautiful? <laughs> it makes no sense. Right? How much of your life makes no sense? Right now. And if I told you sometimes life makes no sense, and it's beautiful. You know, this becomes very attractive to catechisms, those looking for some sort of truth, those looking for some sort of community. Again, within this paradox and within this realization that Jesus came to call sinners, he came to call the sick. And that's why we're here. If you're here for any other reason, you're not here for the right reasons, and you're really sick. So you're here for the right reasons. That's how we need to understand it. But I have a, um, a very close friend, someone I love immensely, that has a, a, a transgender 12-year-old. This little girl thinks she's a boy. And I finally had a chance to sit down with her, and I, I sat down, and I just said, you know, I've never talked to you one-on-one. -on -one. So we talked for probably 45 minutes about everything she loves, video games and, and school. And, but not only did she love them, she said, I'm, I'm being overwhelmed. One of the reasons why she calls herself a boy is because girls aren't that welcome in video game world, in the, the world of, of gaming. And so she somehow feels that becoming a boy will, will make her more accepted in the world of video games. But this is exhausting for her. Like trying to do her hobby is exhausting to her. School has become exhausting. Life has become exhausting. Everything's just hard for her. And so then I finally said to her after hearing all of this, I said, you know, well, you know, you're talking to a priest, so I need to ask you, what do you think about God? And she said, you know, God is just another thing. Just another thing. I'm barely keeping my head above water. And you want to throw God in there? Like, I'm going to sink. I'm going to sink. And so I started trying to explain, well, you know, God can actually be the support, what helps with these other things. And she just wasn't having it. This is so far from her understanding of what is good. God is just another exhausting thing. And I got thinking, I'm like, how often do we call weak people snowflakes politically? Right? I've done it too. We look at someone who's triggered. We look at someone who's weak. We look at someone who, 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 who is, is, needs their safe space. And we call them snowflakes. There's lots of them, including this girl. She's a snowflake. I look out at the world in Los Angeles, there's a lot of snowflakes there. A lot of people that are very, very afraid of getting offended. And they're the ones Jesus came for. <laughs> if only I were a snowflake. If only I was as quick as she was to admit how exhausted I was, how exhausting the world was. The field is ripe for the harvest. These people are blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. They have a poverty that I don't. I think I'm doing okay. I think I'm a pretty good Christian. I think I'm being sent out to change other people to bring them to Christ. Right? That's not who Jesus came for. I'm one of the 99. He's going to leave. He's going to go in search of the one. I'm the older brother in the prodigal son story. He's going to get mad. You didn't give me anything, Lord. You're always welcoming in these snowflakes. You know, you're welcoming in these very broken people who get offended at everything. You know? And Jesus is like, I'm only welcoming them in because you didn't go out after them. The field is ripe for the harvest. If someone says, I'm exhausted and broken and afraid, I'm vulnerable, that's easy. These should be the easy ones. Christ came to give us rest, right? Come to me, all you who find life burdensome and are weary, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
That's the message we bring out. Sometimes I feel those of us who, who, who just mock, I, I saw uh, someone um, online just laughing at the fact that President Joe Biden, like, was, he's an old man, right? So he's walking and, and his, his uh, secret service goes, turn in there, and he doesn't. He just kind of keeps on going. He's a little bit lost. He's old. And they're mocking him and laughing at him. And I said, you know what this reminds me of? I'm not a fan of Joe Biden, by the way, at all. <laughs> of course, right? But you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of, of Noah. He gets drunk in his tent, right? He gets drunk in his tent after the, after the ark goes down, and he's naked. What does Ham do? Ham walks in there, sees his vulnerability, sees his weakness, sees he's drunk, and comes out and abuses it by telling his brothers, Dad's drunk. Look what a mess he is. Look how weak he is. Laugh at him. Laugh at him. What do the two brothers do? They go walking backwards and cover him up. Ham's son is condemned for the rest of the generations that follow him. The two that covered over the weakness, didn't exalt, they didn't laugh at it. Right? And I know so many of us, if we don't like someone, we'll try to find any vulnerability. We'll, we'll laugh at it, we'll point it out. We are the children of Ham. We're the children of Canaan when we do this. The world is full of people who we laugh at and mock, and because they believe something different than us, we, we use that against them. This is not the Christian way. This is an opportunity to see them and to love them, to see that Christ has come for them, to explain that to them by our own knowledge. When we truly understand how sick and broken we are, when we've truly said the prayer of St. Ephraim, let, let me see my own sins, we become overwhelmed, by then we become exhausted. That is why at the center of the great fast, if we see the great fast as a desert, a journey through the desert, which is what the fathers call it. And we see the cross as an oasis, as a beautiful fruit tree standing in the center of the fast, a shade tree in the burning hot of the desert. The middle of the fast then becomes a place of rest. Priests dress in red, we cover everything in red. Um, even on the Sunday, we decorate the cross with flowers. And all of a sudden, our sufferings make sense. We take our eyes off of ourselves for a bit, you know, the, you know the hymn, having suffered the passion for us, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy, have mercy. That is not appropriate for the 40 days of the great fast. What do we hear the two weeks? By the way, I do it in my parish too. I'll explain that in a second. What do we, do the, what do we hear the two weeks before Lent begins? Meat, fair, and cheese for a week. What do we hear? Passion, passion, passion. We hear the passion narrative twice. Meat for a week and cheese for a week. What do we hear during Holy Week? The Passion of Christ. The 40 days are our book ended by the Passion. That's when we should be singing that hymn. The center, those 40 days, are actually we look at ourselves. We need the Passion, but we're not thinking of it yet. We've already thought about it. We're going to think about it again. But you notice in most of our hymnography, the cross is almost never mentioned in the Great Fast. The need for repentance is, prayer is, fasting is, God's saving action, but not the cross. So I don't, I'm not against, I'm not about taking it out, but it's a very late addition to the great fast. And it, it's more of a, of a, when we've decided that we're going to think about Jesus' passion over the four days, but, but Jesus' passion is an oasis. Jesus' passion is a refreshment. Jesus' passion is very, very positive. That's what we venerate it. That's why it's an oasis, a rest. But the rest of the great fast is actually focusing on ourselves and our weakness and our sin, our vulnerability. Not the healing of that, which will come during Great Week. The Sunday of the Ladder of Divine Ascent. This was last Sunday. The Gospel is Mark 9, the possessed boy. Right, Jesus comes down the mountain. There's something that struck me this year as well as I was preparing for my homily for my parish. It's very odd. Jesus comes down the mountain and the man approaches Jesus, falls on his face, and says, my boy is possessed, he falls into fire, he falls into water, you think it would kill him. I, told, I asked your apostles to heal him, and they can't. And Jesus looks at the apostles and says, oh, you of little faith, how much longer must I remain with you? How much longer must I endure you? Bring him to me. Right. So he's, he's pointing out faith from the beginning. 
faith from the beginning. You have little faith. He brings the boy to him. Jesus casts out the demon. The boy looks like he's dead. Right? But he says to the first, before this happens, he says to the man, you know, the man comes to Jesus, can you do it? Can you, your apostles can, can you cast out the demon? And Jesus says, if you can, anything is possible for one who has faith. In other words, he says in the beginning, you have, no, you have little faith. Anything is possible if you have faith. And then a very odd thing. What does the father respond? I do believe. Help my lack of belief. Another paradox, which we love. Right? I do believe. Help my lack of belief. A paradox that we love. And then what does Jesus do? Does he cast out the demon right away? No. The next verse says, he looked up and saw a crowd gathering. And then he casts out the demon. It's a very weird, why is there a crowd gathering in there? One of the explanations is, is Jesus actually did not have as his main priority casting out the demon. I went to a beautiful, wonderful retreat with an exorcist a few years ago. And the exorcist asked us some kind of striking questions. One that I still remember was, what is worse, one mortal sin or being possessed by a demon? What is worse? Not even close. Not even close. One mortal sin is much worse being possessed by a demon. After I preached this, a woman brought me a story of a saint in, uh, I think, down in Peru. And she was a nun, and she got possessed by a demon. And one of the other nuns hears loud banging in her cell and walks and opens the door, and she sees this nun being thrown around the room, smashed against this wall, smashed against that wall. The demon's just throwing her around. And she's absolutely lost in prayer. There's a big smile on her face. You can be possessed by a demon and can be completely in the state of grace. Demons only have power over certain things, like our body, like our dreams. The demon has no control over our soul unless we give it to him. The devil can try to take over parts of us to try to so that we'll give him our soul. But that does not mean that we will. So in other words, faith... Jesus bringing faith to that man and those apostles is much more important than what the demon is doing. Story of the curé of ours, I've seen it, right? The, the devil lit his bed on fire. They still have it. If you go to ours in France, they have, they have his bed, burned bed, like tied to the ceiling so you can still see it. What did the, what did, what does the curé of ours do when the devil lit his bed on fire? He went and slept on the couch. <laughs> it's like he was not afraid. He was not afraid. One of the exorcists students where I was, we had a bunch of demonic things happening. So he came and gave us a talk. And he says, I became an exorcist. We didn't know who he was. He became an exorcist because when I was in the military, in the Marines, the devil appeared to me one night. And I was laying in bed half asleep, and all of a sudden I smelled like the worst smell I'd ever smelled. And I started hearing the worst sound I've ever heard. And I flipped over, and I saw this being that was just the compilation of all my greatest fears and all my greatest shames. All these experiences of things I regretted doing in my life were all in this being. He says, of course, it scared me to death. And I woke up and I went to the chapel and I said, what was that? The chaplain said, sorry, that was a demon. And the fact that God let you see that probably means you're going to see it again. And so I just, be holy. Receive the sacraments. Go to confession. And so he did. Years later, he was a, a novice to become a Franciscan. He was laying in bed. Started smelling the smell. Started hearing the noise. Rolled over. All of his shameful things, all of his regrets, from even from then on, were now in this being manifested there. And he says, at first I thought it was someone breaking into my room to hurt me. I look over and I see this demon and I go, oh, it's only you. And I rolled over and went back to bed. <laughs> right? Right? The demon can only do so much. Jesus doesn't care nearly as much about the demon in this boy that he does the faith he's going to bring. But somehow casting out the demon is going to help the crowd right, have faith. So he does it. It's very similar to other times when he heals, right? which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk. But so that you may know, I'll let you stand up and walk. But that, who cares about standing up and walking? This is being, sins being forgiven is so much more important. Faith is so much more important than whatever the devil is trying to do at this point. If he's not removing faith, then he's not really doing his job. All right, I'm going to, I have some more stuff, but I'm going to finish there if you have any questions. We only have five minutes left, four, six minutes left. Any questions, thoughts? Yes. Okay. Sorry, I did forget. I told you I wouldn't forget. I apologize. Okay.
Yeah. Yeah. So the, the first one was I was sitting talking to this old man. I didn't know who he was. He, was. he had been famous, but I didn't know who he was. And it's LA, so there's a lot of famous people, of course, in and I didn't know who he was. And so I, I'm talking with him. He's very, he and his buddy, and they're very, you know, nice. And we're having this great conversation. Well, then his wife and his wife's friends show up, and it's Halloween. That's important. It's Halloween. So they show up, and, and they're, they're both dressed completely inappropriately. And all of a sudden, when, I, when they get there, he, I think he's uncomfortable that he's sitting there talking to a priest. So he starts kind of razzing me with them there. And he convinces his wife's friend to flash me. She's, she's dressed very inappropriately. And she, goes, and, and she, she flashes me, and oh, I, like, I just flashed a priest. So I just, I just got my beer, picked it up, walked over. Another time was a, a man who is now in prison, thank God. Um, but he, it was, was late. I was getting ready to go. I'm there, it's uh, there, a guy who ends up being a very well-known Hollywood producer, and he's sitting there with the girl who's 30 years younger than him at the bar. And one of the servers comes over and says, oh, Father Mike, I want to introduce you to this guy. He's a Hollywood producer. So I go over there. He's a couple drinks in, so he immediately sees me and immediately starts to just try to say the most horrible things, the most horrible things that will make me uncomfortable since I'm a priest. And he's saying them and saying them. So I just decided, like, you know what, I'm just going gonna, gonna to go. So literally, the server that introduced me just walks up. She's like, whatever, I'm done. She walks up. She was frustrated with him. Frustrated with him. So then I, so then I go, and I'm, I'm like, so I'm about to, I'm just like, this guy's not going to change. I'm going to walk off. But the girl grabs my hand. And she says, are you really a priest? I said, yeah. And she goes, does that mean you'll talk to anybody? And I said, yeah. She said, well, will, like, will you talk to me sometime? And I said, yeah. So she literally takes my hand and just holds it up against her face like this. I'm standing in the bar and like, he's just going and going and going. Like on and on. Like he's not even seeing that his girlfriend's doing this. And she's just holding my hand, like holding the priest's hand to her face for like probably three minutes. And so I just kind of ignore him and try to talk to her. And she's like, I, you know, I'd love to catch up. There's a lot going on in my life. I said, oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But he was getting so foul. The things he was saying were so foul. And it, he, he had grown up Catholic, I found out later, so he knew like all the right things to say. So finally, I just, I just paid for my beer and left. And the third time was these three girls at the bar who, who um, did not, could not just take that there was a priest sitting there at all. They, they, they had an issue, and, and they got so loud and boisterous that the manager came over and, and threatened to kick them out. He just said, you know, Father, if they're, if they're bothering you, I'll kick them. I said, oh, no, it's okay. And then, and then one of the other bartenders who's non-Christian comes over and just says to them, you're judging him. That triggered them. <laughs> because, because, of course, a priest is the one who judges, not a priest getting judged. And they just, that absolutely sent them off. And they got loud and boisterous, and then the manager ended up kicking them out. So th those were the three. A, a silver lining to each one, of course, especially the second two. But those, those are the ones where, where it, it made me so uncomfortable that I thought that was doing more harm than good. So I was just going to leave. Yeah. And you, you have to know that. You have to know when to. Okay. Oh, okay. I'll finish with this. Thank you. I like that. Um, so this is a good story of evangelization. So my, when my brother um, goes off to college, had had uh, some slipping in his morals, we, um, my mom had pulled out four of us, four of the five, to homeschool because our schools were just a horrible place to be. And so my brother, when he grew up, he, he wanted to, he had all in his homeschool co-op had only girls. He wanted to make some male friends. So my mom, kind of unknowing how bad of a place an after-school program could be, sent him to an after-school program. Anyway, he just ran with the wrong crowd, wrong community, right? You have good community, back community. Got with the wrong community. Well, he went off to college um, and got his girlfriend pregnant. The first year of college, first semester of college. And what had happened was is he had slept with her one time, woke up the next morning and broke up with her because he didn't want that influence in his life. He still had a bit of that. Found out a month and a half later she was pregnant. So he left college, went to police academy, became a cop. But the first day of the job, I won't even say what he saw. It was absolutely horrendous, the, 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 the child abuse of a three-month-old that he saw. And as he was walking this guy away from the hospital to, to come away from his kid, my brother just said, he said, my, my hand was just hovering over my trigger. And I said, if I put a bolt through this guy's head, this little girl's life is going to be so much better because he didn't trust the system. You know? And so he says, I didn't let the guy go, thank God, but he left the faith at that moment. He says, I can't believe God would let this happen to a child. Um, so they ended up getting married. But before this, he had baptized his oldest daughter, the, 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 the child they had out of wedlock, baptized the baby. So my brother, Sean, who is the hero of the story, 
was the godfather. So when he left the faith, they got married by the justice of the peace, and we didn't go. And we helped them move in, though, because we thought they were doing the right thing. Like, this is actually good. You know, you're a child together. We're not going to go to the wedding. We know you're called so much more. So then, um, so then we go, and, and uh, Sean goes up to Christopher, and he says, okay, you left the faith. Um, I'll be at your house every Sunday morning, 8 a.m., to pick up the baby. I'll drop the baby back off at noon. And Christopher was like, okay, go ahead. And Sean's like, I'm the godfather. I promised I would do this. So, so Christopher says, okay, go ahead. But Stacy, his wife, says, uh, you're not taking my infant for five hours every Sunday morning. And Sean goes, I'm sorry. This is what you, I said in front of you, I, I'm promising I will raise this child in the faith, if, even if you to abandon it. And so Stacy would wake up every Sunday morning, arms folded. She was a nominal Baptist, non-baptized Christmas and Easter Baptist. And she would sit in the back of the Divine Liturgy in Albuquerque with her arms folded, being angry. And then, and Sean, every, every Sunday, take the baby, give her a Eucharist, come back, hold her the whole liturgy. Um, so about a few months go by, and um, we were, of course, obsessed with this baby because it was the first niece or nephew. So every photo we can get, we're, we're looking at, showing all of our friends. And so MySpace was then, social media, right, at the time. So, so um, my cousin calls up my mom and says, hey, you got to go look at MySpace. Stacy has some pictures of Shaylee, the baby, on MySpace. So my mom goes on there, is looking around, and she goes to the About Me section, like the, the, you know, the, the profile, and it says on there, who's your greatest inspiration? And Stacy puts the Blessed Virgin Mary. My mom goes, what? So she can't take it, and she goes running to Christopher and goes, what is this on her public profile, the Blessed Virgin Mary? Does she even know who that is? And Christopher goes, I don't know. I reached my hand under her pillow last week to grab her hand, and I grabbed a rosary. Mom goes, what? So my mom finally goes to Stacy and says, you know, do you know who the Blessed Virgin Mary is? And Stacy looks kind of embarrassed. And she says, well, Father Chris was talking about this young woman who got pregnant, and everybody judged her. Even her husband judged her, like didn't know what was going on. And, and, then, and then he said, like, and then Father Chris said that I could talk to her. So I Googled Mary, talk to her, <laughs> and what popped up? The rosary. So she went and bought a rosary, totally on her own, didn't tell any of us this, and she'd been praying the rosary. And so all of a sudden, she just comes out, and then she decides to tell Christopher, I'm coming into the Catholic Church, you know? And so she pretty much dragged him kicking and screaming, and now, he, now they're all Catholic. Three kids later, they have four kids now. All are Catholic, beautiful Catholic family. So it, it took the Baptist girl, who I baptized, you know, blessed their marriage, all of these things. It, it occurred to, to bring him back in. But that, that only took six months. Like I said, I was, wearing, I was wearing that for six months. But it, it was just the mother of God who just took things into her own hands. But it was, it, was, it was her understanding community with the mother of God, but also just the finding some sort of like, similar life with this woman, Mary. Again, and she's, she's kind of an introvert, so she just does things on her own. And the mother of God knew that and got her in, so yeah. My brother Christopher, too. Now he says, you know, as a cop, I see these things, and I think, you know, only God is a solution because the cross is real, and the paradox of this world are real, and evil is real, and it cuts through the heart of every single human, like Augustine says, and he understands that very differently than he did in the beginning. Thank you for asking. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. I think she heard that, and she said, this is like, she says, I'm 18 years old, my sister. I'm 18 years old. All my friends are out going to college, and here I am with a baby. Like, no one understands. No one understands why I kept the baby. To this day, she'll say, if anybody you know is struggling with wanting to have an abortion, send them to me, because I understand. She says, I wanted one too. Part of me wanted that, you know. That's why I understand the temptation there, but I also know the beauty of not having it. Done, Father? Okay. Thank you. Let, let's, let's see him to the Theotokos in conclusion. Please stand. It is truly proper to glorify you, O Theotokos, the ever-blessed, immaculate, and the mother of our God, more honorable than the cherubim, and beyond compare more glorious than the seraphim, who a virgin gave birth to God the Word. You truly the Theotokos we magnify. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Father Michael. And by the way, I'll talk about Mary of Egypt tomorrow. So you'll get them all in that way.
very much. Of course. Very much enriching and challenging and telling us to take, as said, the gift and then to share it with others. And uh, marvelous things can happen if we just have that open, humbled heart. So thank you. And our retreat continues tonight at uh, Vespers Liturgy and then tomorrow at Divine Liturgy. So if you could make those schedules work in your, in your busy lives, that would be wonderful to have you tonight and tomorrow. Confessions will be, uh, we'll give Father 10 minutes or so, and then we'll have confessions back here for those who would like to have confessions till, well, by 4 o'clock we have to stop because I have to do social media. Glory to Jesus Christ.